but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. And for the second time this year, second time incredulously for us, we are recording a podcast where Rafael Nadal is an, a yet again Grand Slam champion. Alongside Iga Shiontek. They've won Roland Garros together twice now. Rafiga 2.0. <laughs> yeah, I can't say that's my favorite portmanteau. Part of it means a curse word in Italian, so it sounds kind of ugly to me. Which I'll is let what? you figure that out. I don't speak Italian. I'd rather not explain it. I feel like that was not needed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm struggling to find no, what it added to not the needed. segment. Before we get into the results and the wondrous scenes from the weekend, let's talk about our racket bracket because we did not mention it at all on our mid-tournament episode. Maybe that had to do with how poorly we were doing. Yeah. You know, my expectations were extremely low for the racket bracket. All I wanted was to not be like last mm-hmm. or among the lowest. And I was very middle of the pack in both brackets. I mean, this is in keeping with how you like to move through life. You don't like to be seen. <laughs> oh, I like to be mediocre? No, is that no, what you're saying? I did not say that. I said, I said you like to blend in rather than stand out. Okay. I am wearing something today that resembles camouflage. Yes. <laughs> Did I lie? No, I mean, but I like to be good at things. I mean, well, this is in the public domain, so you've got to pick a, pick a right, struggle. Right. Uh, in the men's, I got 38th. I came 79th. Oh, that's... Of 88 completed <laughs> brackets. I think we had total about 100 on both the men's and women's sign up to play but um, only 88 in each completed their draws. Okay. I do want to take credit, though, for Nadal's win, because I did the anti-jinx with picking Novak to win <laughs> and to beat Novak in the qual- I did too. in the quarterfinals. And I said on our preview episode that if you somehow are able to look through our picks, don't judge, because there's some anti-jinx stuff spattered. Is that Spl- the right word? Splattered? Uh, let's Interspersed? Not. You sure. Okay, throughout the draws, and that was mine. So I I happily fell on that racket bracket sword to elevate the King of Clay. Yeah, as did I. Congratulations to Anna, who got number one in the men's poll. AJ07 came second in both the men and the women. That is uh, quite, quite the result there. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I will say, too, I did not do any of those Joker businesses. I didn't even know about the Joker thing until, like, the fourth round. Until it was far too late. I used a few, but I wasn't really sure if I was doing it correctly, and I I have no idea if it even got me any points. On the women's side, uh, I came 40th. I came 18th. Oh, look at you. And I also picked three of the four semifinalists. When I told you this, really? you were like, you are a nasty, dirty liar. <laughs> Which one did you not pick? I did not pick Maria Sakkari. I had her as the runner-up. Maria Sakkari didn't make the semifinals. 
I'm asking which of the semifinalists did you not pick? You said you picked three. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't pick the the one who. Why is this so difficult? Trevisan, Goff. Trevisan is the one oh, there that we I didn't go. pick. There Instead we of go. Trevisan, I had Sakari. Got it. That's what I was trying to convey. <laughs> Will Kazda got number one on the women's side. Congratulations. Sherry's big up to you, number two on the women's side. And Batas, number four. Fourth place. Batas told me that she shamefully used jokers, though. And there's really, there's no shame in that. They're part of the game. I mean, I, I guess I'm just bitter I didn't know about it until it was too late. <laughs> I do also want to shout out Tony, big friend, fan of the show, always bigging us up, Tony. And I'm going to do you dirty here in that <laughs> cumulatively you had the worst performance of everybody. I cannot believe you said that. <laughs> on the sh- That is so rude. But see, Tony knows it comes from a place of love. And also... I imagine Tony found a way to rework the software so that he could write in Serena for every pick. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably what happened for him. <laughs> Just in case she took that late wild card. Back to tennis. We're going to start with the women. Iga Fiontek, as pretty much everybody expected, won the Roland Garros title, extended her win streak to 35 and counting, beating Coco Gauff in the final. There's been some talk about how Iga's streak hasn't really garnered the attention it deserves, or some people feel it doesn't deserve much attention, or we're wondering why we don't see her on headlines across the world. And I'm not all that interested in that. I think when Iga is playing well, she has a way of making her opponents look kind of bad. And so that does contribute to the quality of the tennis, or or at least the way it looks to to lay people right watching rafa and Iga, especially in the finals more so Iga throughout these past few months it's gotten me thinking about what is it that i look for or want in a viewing experience watching a tennis match of course you know folks on the women's side are all about oh my god rivals everything is so lopsided nothing's interesting on the one hand, you have Iga blitzing everybody, and then it's like, this is dreadful. We know that if a man does it, one of the big three, it's like, whoa, the greatness of it all. And I realize that for me, especially when my faves are involved, I do not want anywhere near a close encounter. <laughs> right. Not only that, but I enjoy watching greatness at play. Sucks for the other person on the other side of the net. Sucks for Casper Ruud, sucks for Coco Gauff, but there is a lot to marvel at and learn from by watching these superior athletes do their craft on a tennis court, even if it's lopsided. Right. On clay, uh, Iga hits a lot of winners. She generates a lot of errors, but those are forced errors. Her opponent has to play really tip-top and aggressive and be able to push her back because once Iga gets on top of a rally, it's usually lights out, right? I think this tournament in the past few weeks has established Iga Sviantec's forehand as the shot in women's tennis, the most important stroke in the game at the moment. And we can say, like, her serve is attackable. Sure, (laughs) it's not a world-class legendary serve, 
And so the problem there is that it's serviceable. It's fine. And if you don't return it deep and aggressively, she's on top of the point already. Mm -hmm. And see, for me, I see so many parallels between Iga and Rafa here. Mm -hmm. They both get deserved credit and praise for their otherworldly forehands. But for me, it's their backhands that really set them up to dominate. And we saw Rafa being able to deploy the cross-court backhand, in particular in that final, strategically against Kasparud. And Ika does the same thing. She did it so many times to Coco Goff in that final. Zhang Qingwen was the last player, in my mind, who was able to handle that shot with some effect. Unfortunately, Kazatkina in the semifinals had no chance. Jesse Pegula, if she could play aggressively and hit flat and not make errors, she could make a match out of it. And she was frustrated, you know, because it looks like she felt she didn't play her very best. But Iga doesn't really allow you to play your very best for too long. But there are solutions out there. People will, coaches will start to teach to Iga. People will start to figure her out. The thing now is that there really is no legitimate rival. And there could be, right? Like, this could change in the grass season. It could change over the summer. But where we are right now, you watch her and you're like, oh, I wonder if anyone's going to beat her. Right. When Naomi was at the top dominating, you understood that you could get a nice little spring respite from the Naomi (laughs) onslaught. Right, Right. With Iga, it's really potentially at this point just a month break. And that's assuming she doesn't figure out grass. Mind you, she is a junior Wimbledon champion. Mm -hmm. But at this level, maybe she needs to shorten her strokes a little bit for grass. I mean, Zena Garrison was talking on Pam Shriver's uh, Twitter space yesterday saying that, well, the Wimbledon grass in her experience has changed so much since when she was a player. She said she's hit on it, you know, in the post 2000 era, and she couldn't believe you could actually rally on grass. So... Players like Rafa, like Iga, Dominic even, have a better chance than they ever would have. But we're not talking about grass. (laughs) The other component is that Iga is just very, very mentally tough out there. So Iga gets through a very easy first set against Coco Goff. Coco right away breaks in the second set, is up to love. And at this point, you're just kind of hoping for Coco's sake that she's able to make this competitive, right? And... Unfortunately for her, much like, well, not as drastically or dramatically as it happened to Kasparud in the men's final after he went up a break, she wasn't able to hold that lead. Right. At this moment, Iga is mentally just too strong, too confident, knows that she has the next gear, knows that Coco's forehand is very attackable at the moment. That love to deficit didn't really seem to face her at all. This is also finals, Iga. She's still so young, but has already developed an aura in finals. One that Serena used to have. Mm-hmm. You know, people love to find the next Serena, make comparisons to her with every new face that comes up on the WTA Tour. But I feel like this is one of the definite comparisons that you can make between a player and Serena at this point in Iga's career. In a final, it's even tougher to beat her. You mentioned Iga's streak is now at 35 consecutive matches. That ties Venus Williams's 2000 season, where she ran 
35 in a row against the WTA field, winning Wimbledon, the Olympics, and the U.S. Open. Yes, it included 17 wins versus top 10 players. So a good half of those 35 matches were victories over top 10 players, two wins over Hingis, three wins over Davenport, wins over Sellis. This is an incredible streak, right? And this is not to sort of diminish what Iga is doing, but um, it's different. Yeah, it is. It's, <laughs> it's still an incredible feat. Because oh, we're, we're talking about winning the Sunshine Double. Going from Indian Wells to Miami, back to back, two long, sprawled out events on the spring hardcourt season, different surfaces, then translating that over to, well, this even started from before, from Doha. Yeah. From the Middle East to North America, different surfaces now onto clay. And different types of European clay, mm-hmm. right? We have this indoor clay in Stuttgart. Rome, the traditional red clay courts, and then on to Roland Garros. I think it's really important that Iga won a major as part of this streak. And you may disagree, but I think that would have diminished it in my mind. Like, if you're going to win that many matches, you've got to put a cap on it. If you win 35 matches in a row, you're going to catch a major. Unless you're skipping them. (laughs) Or out for injury. (laughs) Well, you still got to win it. Now, this, this Venus record, right... For some reason, all of the networks and the statisticians decided that since 2000 was the standard, which is very strange to me. You know, these streaks are not even in the top 10 of the largest winning streaks in women's tennis. Did someone decide that since it's so rare in like sort of the post-2000 landscape that that's the standard? That Venus's streak was the standard? Maybe they didn't want to have to explain that Krissa did it multiple times that this was not uncommon in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that women's tennis was quite different then, but, I mean, we're not just going to erase open-era records, are we? This isn't like the 1890s. We were alive for some of these. Martina Navratilova is the record for 74 matches in a row. Uh, In 89 to 90, Steffi Graf won 66. Martina had another one that was 58 matches long. You know, it goes on. So I just would like to expand the search a little bit. But I think people look at Venus's 35 and the quality of event and field and players that she beat as like the standard for this particular yeah, streak. The modern standard. Yeah. Fine. I mean, if Iga carries this on through the summer and gets to like 60 in a row, then we're going to start seeing that number pushed back. <laughs> yes. I think this was the more immediate point of comparison. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned Serena because everybody on Twitter, everybody's trying to get a hit tweet, right? And so a lot of people are tweeting fairly outlandish things, comparing this to the legends. Meanwhile, you were pretty salty about a tweet that you (laughs) sent out that you thought was like it, and it barely did anything. Oh my God. I I mean, there was some gold that I was tweeting from the body server account, and it didn't flop, but it didn't go anyway. I think you're just existing on such a higher plane. And it wasn't even about this, but my uh, my message, my takeaway here is let's stop comparing active players to, to the greatest. I think the big three and Serena era has really messed with our heads and has convinced us that these feats will be accomplished again. And they may, right? There, There's no telling what's going to happen. Somebody might win 15 Roland Garros titles. 
But can we just let these players live? Can we enjoy what they're accomplishing in the moment and then see what happens in 10 years? It's just, to me, it's like a conclusion that doesn't require a lot of insight. What are you talking about specifically? Saying uh, this person is now uh, in the realm of Navratilova and Graf and etc. as far as win streaks, uh, the rate at which she's achieving things. Just like, let's, let's slow down. And also fact check. Were you talking about the need to situate this 35-match win streak? Yeah. And every, you know, every new player who comes up, Naomi, oh, is she the next Serena? Is Iga the next Serena? Is Coco the next? There is no next Serena. Yeah. Like, let's, we got to do better with the current people we have. We saw that with Coco when she hit the final, that folks were like, she has arrived. The (laughs) heir has arrived. Right. And are we just looking at two black people? Like, is that it? (laughs) Because the achievements are not similar and coco is only 18 like i it's it's reaching it's doing a lot of reaching right unnecessarily and i hope and believe that coco will reach more grand slam finals but i think this final exposed the fact that there are things in her game that that need work and they're no mystery i'm sure her team is working on them but it was clear from this final that there was nothing really that coco did that bothered Ika. right even one of Coco's biggest assets, her movement and her speed on court, Iga kind of made her look a little bit slower than you'd expect in spots. Mm -hmm. And it might just be an illusion because of the way Iga's hitting, you know? But this is a huge achievement for Coco Goff. It's a huge step up, you know, reaching her first semi, then reaching her first final, reaching the final again in women's doubles. She also played in a final at the U.S. Open. I love that she's playing doubles. She said when asked, you know, is this a bit, is is this too much tennis? She's like, no, like back in the day, back in my day, I'd be playing three matches in one day. <laughs> back in the day, you know, Bill Tilden would play the mixed men's and singles all in one day. And have time to try and sabotage Suzanne Long Law at night. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, Coco is young, like... This is the time to play both singles and doubles and go deep in both. And if she decides at one time that doubles is no longer helping her, singles will be the priority. And I trust her and her team to know that. The semifinalists, Iga beat Kasatkina easily, handily, and Coco beat Martina Trevisan. Not Sloane's favorite. <laughs> Speaking of Sloane, Coco beat Sloane in the quarterfinals, and Sloane was... All about Miss Goff winning this title afterward. Oh, yeah. She calls her Coco Fina. Apparently, I saw that on Instagram. She was asked who her favorite was in the semifinal. And uh, rather emphatically said Trevisan was not her favorite. And then she went on to clarify in this match. Right. (laughs) Sloane is inimitable. There's nobody like her in press. I see here you were on Sensible Flat Watch. Can you explain what that is? Well, if you recall, after Iga won the French Open in 2020, mm-hmm. didn't we entitle the episode A Sensible Flat? Or we've I think it might have been last year, actually, that we... But yes, she's been in Sensible Flats ever since. Okay. It was... The title of the whatever episode it was, was in reference to her taking pictures with trophies and yes. showing up wearing a sensible flat. <laughs> in my mind. But, you know, a lot of folks... 
are needing her to glam it up even more and looking for the shoe. So I was particularly interested in how this was going to play out. And when I initially saw the first photo, I was like, oh my God, that flat is so cute. And then I enlarged the photo to see a cute little two, three inch heel on it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, for the record, Iga doesn't need to glam it up. She can dress however she'd like in these photo shoots. I do not care. And speaking of, there was... I think on the agenda here it says, fucking Ubaldo strikes again. (laughs) So Catherine Whitaker of the Tennis Podcast shared this question without the name of the person who asked it. That person pretty swiftly exposed himself. All of the tennis Twitter world knew exactly who asked it without being told. This happens all the time. Like We see questions from press conferences all the time, and we just know it's Ubaldo. Yes. Now, reporters are required to identify themselves at the French Open, which is nice. He asked a two-pronged question. The first one was about, you know, what your best shot is. Then he said, outside of the court, when you go to a party, do you use makeup? Do you like to go elegant and smart and so on? Because many players we have seen in the past, they were staying hours in front of the mirror before going on court and using the makeup. And you seem very natural like this. Eager replies, okay, thank you. (laughs) We don't have to waste time explaining why this is problematic. This is not the 1960s anymore. You all get it. It's degrading. Why would you ask a woman about her makeup? And Catherine rightfully calls this out. And I want to say, let's please resist the urge to... to paint all of the tennis media in the same light or with the same brush. Because when this sort of thing happens, it does require reporters to call out their colleagues. And she did that. There are a lot of highly qualified, serious journalists in this press room. He is not one of them. And then he further exposes himself by responding to Catherine, tweeting, saying, quote, If you will see a lot of media writing about a 21-year-old girl who until his 21 years old didn't know how to make up herself. Well, first people understands more about her personality than reading that she has a better backhand down the line than a forehand cross court. Unintelligible. And his, well, his argument is that what's more interesting is hearing why she doesn't wear makeup. That it tells us more about her personality. It makes no sense. And then he replies to Catherine again, And just gets in this little jab about how he's been covering tennis many more years than you, than her. So he would know. If you have been, you've been covering tennis for damn near 60 years. We know this. How are you not better? This dude just bottom line has no business doing this at this point. I don't feel a way saying it. He's been called out by players. Uh, He's been embarrassed, impressed by players. You, I mean... We, we don't know a whole lot about like what goes on behind the scenes as far as credentialing and, and how those decisions are made. I know for a fact that people have been suspended or removed during a tournament, that credentials have been revoked for various reasons. But this guy, is he's in the International Tennis Writers Association. Everybody knows him. Feels kind of like Teflon. But this is embarrassing. Like, it's embarrassing for the sport. It's annoying for players. And it probably makes them think, like, why the hell am I doing this? The world number one, by far and away, the best women's player on the planet at this moment. So much so that she currently has almost twice as many points as a number two ranked player. (laughs) 
having just achieved this career milestone, comes to press and is met, met with that. It's embarrassing. But he, he, he has no shame. Clearly. I mean, he lectured Catherine in the replies about why she was wrong. Well, that's... His whole shtick is a sexist, paternalistic one-two-step. Well, and it's... I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Period. The one more bit of news to come out of the woman's draw before we move on is that Leila Fernandez, someone who I think we kind of expected to beat Martina Trevisan, losing in three sets in the quarterfinals, we find out when her father and coach goes on TSN to tell everybody that she has a grade three stress fracture in the top of her right foot and that she will miss Wimbledon and that they are hopeful that she'll return for the Washington DC tournament. He goes on further to say that he was constantly following up with her from round to round to find out how she was feeling because she had a bit of a, a foot issue in the earlier rounds and ahead of the Trevisan match, she told him that she was fine. She wasn't having any problems. And then at some point in that match against Trevisan, it became evident to him that that was not the case. In that moment, he wanted her to stop playing right then and there. She was not having it. Mm -hmm. And that he felt angry as a father that she was putting herself in this position to potentially jeopardize her career long term. But then he said, on the other hand, as a coach, he understands that as an athlete, if you you sign up for this job and if you're on the court, you're going to try and put your best foot forward. So he gave this tearful, emotional play-by-play -play of what it's like to wear both hats as father and coach of Leila Fernandez. Mm. Yeah, it was very interesting. We see a lot of young players try to fight through injury. Bianca did it at the WTA Finals in 2019, and it possibly fucked her up for a long time. She had no business completing those matches on that knee. And Layla is somebody who's going to fight. That's just, it just seems like that's her personality. But I think players need to sort of be given the... Uh, they need to be granted the grace to pull back. Right. Without... And like, fans don't need to be going through, oh, this person retired such and such many times. Well, okay. I mean, if they're injured, they should stop. They shouldn't make it worse. Because we also watch folks like Nadal and say, oh my God, he's the greatest fighter the sport has ever seen. But at what cost? And we've seen right. that front and center this tournament with what cumulatively he's had to deal with and what that looks like present day. Mm -hmm. And what will it look like after he no longer plays tennis? Mm. Shall we move to the men's side of the action? Yeah. Now, let's be clear that we've been Nadal fans for many, many years. So we're going to be extremely uh, biased and gloating about this win. Um, I don't know if I need to gloat at this point. I feel that's <laughs> antithetical to the vibe that Rafa's been giving from this yes, tournament. Yes, that's true. Let's just say this was, as as much as he's seen as a lock every time Roland Garros comes around, this was a surprise to me, given his draw, given his form. Given we didn't know he was even playing until shortly before the tournament. You were apoplectic after, what was it, Indian Wells? Well, that, he, that he played that tournament, that he got injured, and then the foot became an issue, and then it's like, 
why can't we have nice things? We got this <laughs> glorious moment in Australia that nobody thought would happen. And he goes on to win tournaments. He is by far and away the best player on tour this year. And then all this happens. His right. favored clay season, Roland Garros, is thrown up into question to the point where, I mean, we've said on the show, doubt Nadal at your own peril at Roland Garros. But this was... A lot. There were a lot of mitigating <laughs> factors for him to win again for a 14th time. Right. After he came back from the stress fracture in his rib, he said that all of the confidence from that win streak opening the year is gone. That he felt like he was back at the start. That was discouraging. Losing to Denis Shapovalov in Rome was discouraging, especially because the foot was an issue. And it seemed like there was just not enough recovery time. And now we found out that he was basically getting nerve blocks to stop the pain in his foot in order to play. He was essentially numbing the foot. Okay, I mean, we'll we'll get caught up on what exactly is the state of Rafa's foot in a little bit. <laughs> sure. But we'll talk about the final first. Rafa beating Kasper Ruud. Ruud getting through that considerably softer half of the draw. Most people expected Tsitsipas to get there, but he did not. Andre Rublev had a real chance to have that first big breakthrough at a slam. And again, he was unable to. Losing to Marin Cilic, a resurgent Marin Cilic, in five sets. And at this point, I think we have to have a conversation about Rublev's lack of big results at big tournaments. Yeah, it seems like Rublev keeps getting to that quarterfinal stage and just can't get to the next level. He's lost to Medvedev at that stage several times. Not a great matchup for him, but it just seems like his performance at 500s is world-class. And then when we get to the majors, there's something holding him back from reaching that semifinal and final stage. And he's played long enough to the point where... It's not just that you're coming up against the top guys and they're beating you at a certain point. You've still only made three slam quarterfinals mm -hmm. in your mm -hmm. career. And he knows it at this point. And when asked, you know, what is what is the, the block here? And he said, you know, in the past, it's been an emotional thing. I get too emotional and can't get out of my own way. We know he says he doesn't think he needs psychological help from like a sports psychologist. He said as much. But again, he says here that, again, I got too emotional. Right. Now, so what? something has to give here, dude. Now here he lost to a surging Marin Cilic, got to a fifth set tiebreak, which as you know is the first to 10 points, winning by two. And Marin won that tiebreak 10 to two. And his form coming into the semifinal was kind of, uh, kind of imperious. He won that first set in the semifinal fairly easily and was looking like he was still squarely in the middle of a purple patch. And then Kaspar Ruud just turned that Titanic right back around. <laughs> I know you said we're going to start with the final, but we're, it seems like the most logical thing here is to start from the back and move forward. Okay. okay. From a narrative perspective. Let me flip my page then. So we talked about Rublev and Cilic in that quarterfinal. Ruud played... Halger Huna. Mm-hmm. And... Uh... Wow. The the after effects of this match have carried on for days, much more than the match itself. I've referred to him as the perpetually aggrieved I on mean, the show before. It, you know, I appreciate it because I love mess. 
But this kid never stops. Like, it never stops with him. Are we in for another Nikirios? Is he taking on the mantle? See, I, I see a lot more of a comparison to Leighton Hewitt. Oh, with okay. Holger. So this mess all started... First of all, give credit where it's due. Holger beat Stefano Tsitsipas in the round of 16. He took a set from Kaspar Ruud in the quarterfinals. The kid is good. But there's just always so much more going on. It started with some in-match drama. Hauger did not uh, act in, in a very sporting way throughout the match. Gives Casper a... took issue with him needing the umpire to check every mark. It seemed yes. like to Casper Room. Even balls that were clearly well out needed to have the ball checked. Right. That is very annoying. It's annoying to what I remember we called Sophia Kennan on this uh, probably three years ago when she beat Serena Williams at the French. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Huna gave a very uh, flimsy handshake. Casper kind of shook his head annoyed. It was a drive-by. Yes. Umbridge was taken. And we thought that was the end of it. How naive. Afterward, a Danish tabloid reported oh, basically word for word Halger's version of events after the match. And he said, in what has now been termed Yawgate, that Casper in the locker room got in his face in a very intimidating way and screamed Yaw, you know, which means yes in most Germanic languages. So in the middle of that match, Casper supposedly told Holger, like, dude, like, what's going on with the checking of every mark, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> to which the response was, be quiet. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> oh. And so Casper's like, okay, fine, do you boo. And then the thing at the net happened, the drive-by at the net happened, and Casper shook his head twice disapprovingly. And then all this stuff happened after the match. Of course, Holger's mom is somehow always involved in these dramas. She corroborated the Yaw story. Mm -hmm. Then Casper was forced to give an interview and say... This is a complete lie. I never screamed in his face. Lies, lies, more lies, and lies on top of lies. (laughs) Many thanks to the Twitter account at Relevant Tennis, who provided a very clear chronology of the Rune Rude drama. So Casper says it's a lie. His dad corroborates his version of events. Holger posts again on Instagram. And says, quote, let him work and let me enjoy my great results and some days off. Good luck tomorrow, Casper Rude. And like, dude, the call is coming from inside the house. You're the one who keeps bringing it up. What do you mean, let him work? You started it. And also, who are we to believe here? Are we to believe his mother who helped cover up the hate crime? (laughs) Not cover up, but... Excuse? uh, She excused it. And tell us to... Basically, let him be overlook all, yes the homophobia like um Holger told her to get out of the stadium in the middle of that match <laughs> this this kid is going to be a problem however you look at it a problem uh entertaining uh like a train wreck that you can't look away from he's going to be it now what intrigues me is what if it's all true and Casper is like a secret mean girl that would be like the funniest thing ever um 
Well, wouldn't that be a lesson for Holger to learn? <laughs> okay, so the other quarterfinals were obviously the ones that were generating headlines because of who was in them. Zverev beats Carlos Alcaraz in four sets. This is the shocker. I don't really watch Zverev matches, to be totally honest, but I did watch some of this one. And it's a shocker, but looking back, is it as shocking as it seemed at first? Probably not. And I think because of Carlos's lack of experience, it's not that shocking. I mean, he was in incredible form coming in, but Zverev seemed to finally put things together and come with a coherent plan to beat this kid. Mm. Well... The magic just wasn't there for Carlos in this match. Right. And despite, as he does, despite so many attempts to gift points to his opponent, that guy was still able to win this match. <laughs> but but to be fair, like there was actually a game plan that was executed. Yeah, I mean, he did, he did things well and he got the job done. Yes. I'm just saying within every Zverev match, there are opportunities for the opponent. Yes. We got Nadalovic, or Rafole, however you'd like to coin it. And this was strange. It was a strange match. It was four sets. I don't feel that either played their best. In the second set, after losing the first, there was a massive effort by Djokovic to just ball bash. He was returning the hell out of these serves. I mean... He was playing big babe tennis. And if it continued in that way, you're thinking, well, I mean, who can withstand this barrage? Like, it it has to stop. And for Novak, it did. You know, I mean, he was hitting the ball like Madison Keys out there in the second set, pounding the shit out of the ball, placing returns at Rafa's feet. And then surprisingly, at the beginning of the third set, Rafa breaks immediately. And the, the momentum is stopped. Right, Rafa broke to start each of the first three sets. Okay. I did not watch this match because for my own uh, well-being, I decided to remove myself from it. (laughs) I do not enjoy these encounters in real time. But I went back and I watched the majority of it, watched extended highlights, everything. And it's amazing how the narrative that you create for yourself by just following live scores, because I did follow along as it was happening is so markedly different from actually watching the match. Mm -hmm. Rafa got up double break in three of those four sets. You follow along without watching and you're like, okay, he's up a set and three love. This is amazing. He must be going gangbusters. And then Novak wins the set 6-4. And you're like, wow, Nadal must have really just shit the bed crumbled. This is uh, an irreversible, unstoppable freight train right now. (laughs) But when you watch it, Nadal was in every single one of those games. Mm -hmm. Every single Mm -hmm. one. Even though he gave up that double break lead and was then broken a further time to lose the set, he had game points, he had break points. Even though Djokovic raised his level to that height, Nadal was still there. And so going back and watching the highlights, no, it's not a surprise that Nadal goes up early in the third set again, because his level didn't really drop that much. Mm -hmm. And we know that to beat a Nadal playing well on clay on Philippe Chatrier takes an otherworldly level of sustained 
play that not even Novak Djokovic historically has been able to do. Mm. It just it felt like on Novak's end he wasn't able to sustain that high level. Like he played well for a set, but watching it, I personally was surprised the momentum wasn't able to be sustained into the third set. Because Rafa was playing well, but I don't think that he was playing like at the peak of his powers. You know what I mean? I think mentally he believed that he was going to win. You have to remember that Novak brings so much baggage to his matches against Rafa on clay on that court. Mm -hmm. Even if he's beaten him before. He beat him last year and Rafa had a bum foot and he had a bum foot this year, (laughs) right? But it was, there was some medical intervention this year. Okay. My point is, sans interruption, (laughs) that there's a cumulative effect of all those bruises that he takes over the years against Nadal on that court. The same can be said of Rafa against Novak on hard court. And there's only so much strategy that you can put into play to overcome the mental aspect of this matchup Mm. on these surfaces. Mm -hmm. How much coaching is it going to take to bring something new? To make a material difference right. in these kinds of scenarios, and I agree. I don't. I don't think Novak was at the peak of his powers in this match at all. And there were some surprising decisions. That famously, that poor drop shot that Nadal hit, that Novak just let go, didn't mm-hmm. even try for. There were some shot choices. There were some misses that were alarming. But I think that that's what we saw, the, the cumulative effect of this matchup on clay for him. Even Isovich gave an interview and he said he felt Novak kind of lacked intensity, like kind of lacked the belief that he was going to win and, and Rafa just brought it. And so at this point, we have Nadal against that guy in the semifinal and then we have Rude against Chilich in the other semifinal. At this point, Nadal has come off of five sets against Felix Ogeliasim, he's vanquished his biggest rival in the last decade, truly, at this point. Mm-hmm. The number one, the favored person for this tournament, and he's still only at the semifinal stage. Right. And so now he's facing Alex Verev. He gets broken immediately to start the match, <laughs> goes down love to. The roof is closed, it's extremely humid. I've learned that there's no climate control in Philippe Chatrier. Basically, they built a roof with no interventions as far as air conditioning, any way to moderate the humidity. Like, you get what you get. And so what we saw was a very clumpy, sticky clay court, which possibly manifested an injury later in the match. And it was just a very brutal match to watch because the shots were not penetrating it was slow it was rough at the first sets we didn't even get two full sets and the match was three hours and seven minutes long it was a total shit show <laughs> who wanted to watch this honestly right it was on pace to be a seven and a half hour match that is not tenable or sustainable for anybody and in these conditions we saw at the end of that second set where Zverev was extended out to his forehand uh, by a Nadal forehand down the line, and he, his foot got stuck, and he rolled over on his ankle, and it was horrific scenes. Like, the type of 
injury. You see it all the time in basketball. We've seen it in tennis many times where it's difficult to watch. Yeah. I think of a, I think it was Tatiana Golova injury who rolled over her ankle. Pneumatic um, Sands. Yes. Paul so George. Oh, I don't. I, in basketball. Well, I know who he is, yeah. but I haven't seen that. Are we going there already to the injury? Yeah, I mean, I don't need to talk more about this match. Oh, okay. Bottom line, Nadal was up a set. He came he back. He was from, ahead in the match. He came back from two six in the first set tie break with some incredible forehand passing shots, just vintage stuff. Some of the most ridiculous shot play you will ever see, <laughs> right. ever see. If you are that guy, you would legitimately feel aggrieved to lose that set. Yes, the second set opened with four consecutive breaks of serve. Then Zverev held once. And then there were four more consecutive breaks of serve. It was a weird match, right? It was, and it also featured a lot of gifts. It was Rafa's birthday, and (laughs) that guy showered him with freebies in that match. Double fault after double fault, missed volleys, just some rancid tennis in spots. (laughs) Now, late in the second set, to be totally honest with you, they both looked kind of cooked to me. I don't know how they would have continued if this match went five sets but Zverev rolled over his ankle very ugly injury and then I felt like things just got weird on Twitter it got very weird Mm -hmm. (laughs) right Uh, it felt like a lot of folks wanted to appeal to reason and empathy and there were like a lot of convoluted kind of hand-wringing tweets about how well, we don't like him, but we have to feel bad. And like, okay, I I don't like him at all. But I hate to see this. I feel so bad for him. Blah blah blah. And then there are folks who are like, oh, even if you feel this way about him, you have to at least feel something. I and and so, I assure you, I did not. I don't. My response to that is, I will never celebrate somebody's injury. Like that did that didn't give me any joy. But do I do I care? No. Like, I don't, I don't care. And I'm not going to pretend that I care. Or do I feel bad about it? I do not have that emotion. I'm not going to fake it. I'm no. over here being silent about it decidedly because I have nothing good to say. <laughs> right. Know? Like, I, I mean, the, there's always the option to say nothing, to tweet nothing. And that's what I did in the moment because I don't know, like, yeah, the match is over. Like, am I supposed to pretend to feel sympathy for this person because i don't do i do i feel joy absolutely not objectively it sucks for him does that have an effect on my emotions none whatsoever mm. none unmoved unbothered just i don't know i don't like maybe i don't know maybe it's our age where you get more comfortable like expressing those kind of feelings i don't know it was just it, it got weird so then, it's a nadal Kasparud final because, as I mentioned before, Kasper just turned that Titanic around against Chilich. I mean, it was some pristine ball striking against Marin. It, I mean, kudos to that man because Marin was running full steam ahead. Yes. The match was interrupted by a protester, and as is the policy of all the major broadcasters, they did not show us what was going on. <laughs> but... A young woman ran onto the court, fastened herself in some way to the net, and was wearing a t-shirt that said, We have 1,028 days left. 
and it turns out that this was a climate protester. Mm. The 1,028 days has something to do with the organization that she's with and the deadline that they've set vis-a-vis the French government and their climate politics and what have you. Because folks were like, let me do the math. What is 1,028 days from now? It it very well could have been like uh, a Pentecostal apocalyptic group. It could have been the guilty remnant from the leftovers. Pentatonics? Pentecostal. (laughs) But... You know, it was actually a good cause. The issue is that tennis cannot allow this shit to happen. Like, first of all, a child moseyed on up to Rafael Nadal in a previous match without any intervention, right? Managed to get on court and actually come face to face with Rafa. In this match, a, a woman got on court and security did what exactly? Right. You don't know if that child is... Uh offspring of a Djokovic fan and there's anthrax on his hands like you don't know like there's no way to know these things anthrax this is hyperbolic not and this is hyperbolic okay, okay. I do not think that this would happen I'm just saying let's remember I'm just, I'm just let's remember that one of the goats was stabbed on court exactly by a crazed fan of their opposition and that was not a rational right thing this that was happened. A, a disturbed person right but the fact that people can continue to get so close to these players is obviously a problem. And Monica was stabbed in service of elevating her biggest rival. Yeah. You know, so this is 29 years later. Wow. 29 years later. And this stuff is still happening. But hey, I'm with you on the climate activism. There was recently a scene or a storyline on Borgen, on the new Borgen where Brigitte's, this spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it yet, I mean, not really, uh, Brigitte's son hijacked, uh, I don't know, a pig truck? A pig truck, yes. A pig truck. A truck carrying pigs. Basically, piglets. They, all these piglets were loaded on a truck and they were eventually going to be slaughtered, obviously. Little piggies. And they, he drove the... They were on their way to the market. <laughs> and this little piggy never got home, unfortunately. Did not. Drove them to a field and like let them go. And then, you know, they ran into the street and they had to be euthanized. It was a whole thing. But there was a conversation about, yes, I I approve of your political views, but the method was really problematic. <laughs> I, I don't want you to think that I'm a liberal here because I'm actually very into direct action. I think it's very effective. That's not what you were giving. I know, just I now. know. I'm ju- I was just giving like an alternate view. Because, I mean, I have, in theory, I have no issue with what she did. Right. In practice, from a tournament perspective, it cannot happen. Mm -hmm. There's not much to be said about this final. It was what I needed from this final. Mm -hmm. I had to work that day. And uh, the trophy ceremony finished up right as I needed to head through the door. So I have no complaints. Yeah, the timing was incredible for you. It was 6-3-6-3-6-love. It was very one-sided. It never really gave any drama. Casper is a very accomplished clay court player, but there was just nothing he could do on Sunday that really rattled Rafa. Rafa went up 2-love in the first set. First of two breaks for Casper, he was able to bring it back to 2-1. Rafa ends up winning 6-3. Second set, Rude is gifted a break from Nadal. This after Rafa had 15-40 in the opening game on Casper's serve, unable to convert those break points. Casper goes up one love in the second set. Eventually, he's up 3-1. Mm-hmm. 
and you think, well, if he holds, it's 4-1, and then I won't get to see the end of it before work. (laughs) But also, then it becomes a little bit more tricky because you have the cumulative effect of the Felix match, the the emotional and physical heft of the Djokovic match, the just crazy three-hour, not even two-set mess of the semifinal. Mm -hmm. What is going to be happening to Nadal in that moment if he's down 4-1 and physically the toll starts to add up and then a mental aspect comes in? There was none of that. Casper played a couple of loose shots. Rafa broke right away and did not lose another game the rest of the way. Yeah. Winning 11 consecutive games. And by the time you got to the third set, it was it was playing chess against somebody who was making all the moves that you wanted him to make. Mm-hmm. Afterward, Casper said that what was particularly effective was your favorite shot, Rafa's cross-court backhand. Yes. He said it felt like returning a left-handed forehand. Or, well, right-handed forehand, if he will. Well, Rafa is, this has been explained before, he's a lefty. Sorry, he's a righty in his regular life. Yeah. So, in theory, he has more strength and is able to do more things with his backhand than you or I would Mm -hmm. in our offhand. Right, right. But we have seen, like, in the past, sometimes the backhand lands well short. Mm -hmm. And it's something that someone like Djokovic, for example, could expose. But in this match, Rafa was very pleased with how he hit his backhand because it opened up the court for a forehand winner many times. Mm -hmm. There was a particular shot in the third set where I believe it was Casper's backhand landed short around the service line and Rafa sprinted toward it to run around the backhand and then clock an inside-out forehand for a winner. And the sprint speed with which he ran to that bond and was like <laughs> that's that's really good you've got his voice down i don't know how you do it but i mean by the end of that match he was doing everything he wanted to do at will and there was nothing casper could do to stop him from getting balls in positions exactly where he wanted to receive them And then he was able to execute on top of it. A few stats, because I know you love stats. Sarcasm. Yeah. Rafa becomes one of only five male players to beat four top ten players en route to a major win. The last person to do that was Roger Federer in 2017 Australian Open. The last top ten win of those being Rafa himself. Indeed. From down a break in the fifth set, the last person to do that consecutively, which Rafa did from the fourth round on, was Mats Wielander in Roland Garros in 1982. Who was courtside. He was. So Rafa's now 112-3 and three at Roland Garros. This is just ridiculous. <laughs> that, that like 112-3, yeah. and three, that's like my Wordle score. Right. That's my Wordle record. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's only and been you're just, over the course of like five months. Yeah. He's, this is over the course of, what, 18 years? Yeah, he's uh, 14-0 in finals. He's beat Federer, what, four times in finals here? Djokovic, I think, three times. This is his 19th consecutive year, not only winning a title, but a clay title. And I'm always interested in this. So, like, past his 30s, he's won eight majors. 
Djokovic has also won eight majors in his 30s. Federer only four. I was actually very surprised by that. Serena is kind of the gold standards of, of senior citizen tennis. She's won 10 majors in her 30s. But it's in w- within reach for Djokovic and Nadal. I had to go back and think about this. And, and then I realized that this streak of 30-plus wins for him started in the 2017 season. And that season was so refreshing and shocking for us because it wasn't just Rafa winning against the odds when folks had written him off. Roger was doing it too. They split all four slams that year. Yeah. Roger winning in Australia, Wimbledon, Rafa winning French and US Open. And it was a real throwback. But a throwback that you were kind of like, well, amazing, cute, but again, probably the end of the road. <laughs> right, right. We are. This is the swamp. We are swamp. five, six years on now, and Rafa is still doing this. It's 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 difficult to comprehend, and I think that's why the title of this episode is "Je ne comprends pas." <laughs> I don't understand. Correct. There's a Mariah reference in there. If any of the lambs out there, oh, they'll can clock it. They'll know. Okay, John Wertha made a really good point in talking about Rafa's achievement in Paris saying that it wasn't just the physical toll and the physical ask that was required of him to win this title. It was the emotional toll as well. Because yes, the foot, which we'll get to shortly, but also playing against Felix in the fourth round, coached by your uncle. I really don't think Rafa cares about that at all. But, you know, for the sake of this narrative, Mm. then you have to play your biggest rival in the last decade, the one who is... Your biggest threat, really. Really. Who beat you last year, who is hungry to prove the haters wrong. Mm-hmm. Then you have to play that guy. You go through the grueling three hours and have to witness that happen. Mm-hmm. And then you get to a final where you are one of the biggest favorites that you've ever been to win a title. Yeah, by somebody you've played at the Rafael Nadal Academy how many times? Casper already said publicly that he's never Casper's never beaten Rafa even in practice. You know, there's a bit of hero worship there. Casper mm. was not really setting himself up with a good shot at beating Rafa. I'll get to that. I You don't agree? I rebuke all that talk. <laughs> but the point is there was a lot of emotional lifting to do to get to this point and then to not have the letdown. And before right. the final, Rafa was asked about that and he said, listen, I've been doing this for for so long. I've been in this position so many times. I am not that type of player. Right. But for fans, it was very difficult. Mm-hmm. It was very stressful. And many of us came into this tournament expecting very little. But to Casper, what is wrong with that? Oh. I, I don't... Like, folks are out here talking about how, wow... These men on the ATP, they really just, they lose before they even get out of the locker room because of all this reverence and idolizing of the big three. I think it's it's interesting. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but somebody was saying, like, you don't see, you never saw that kind of stuff on the WTA when Serena or Sharapova were dominating or Enna even. The, the other women don't say... I look up to Serena so much. I just, I'm so honored to even be in the final with her. No, Mm -hmm. they want to win. See, and I would posit that that had to do with a dislike 
of Serena and <laughs> Maria in a okay. lot of spots. Okay. Because until they until Serena started losing in those finals, that also was the narrative. Mm. Mm-hmm. You do, they absolutely said the same thing about the woman. Okay. So until Serena became fallible in those finals, then now we have this like change in narrative. Like I, I rebuke it because also there is something touching about it for me. I choose to hold on to that. Like these are people that you look up to. And yes, when Casper says like someday I'll be able to tell my grandkid that I played against Rafa Nadal on Philippe Chatteret in a French Open final and I will cherish that moment. Yes. That's cute to me because yes, it also does not preclude him from coming back next year and winning. Right, but say it save it for after the match. Mm. <laughs> that that's all I'm saying. But the man the man had the result of his career. Yes. Yes. He was not expected to get to this final. But he's very young and he has to assume that he'll be there again. Yeah. Anyway, back to Rafa what contributed to the mental difficulties here is the foot. Like, we have to talk about what's going on with that. So he received injections throughout the tournament that basically stopped the pain signals to the brain, right? Mm. His foot was numbed. He would not answer the question from a reporter about how many injections he got. He didn't want to go into that. But basically, he couldn't feel much of the foot throughout this tournament and he said, listen, I cannot go on like this. He was very clear. Like, if there is no further medical intervention, he will not and cannot continue his career like this. Because he says he will not show up to Wimbledon and do the same injections. Right. Throughout the tournament, he was pretty cagey about what exactly was going on with the foot. Mm-hmm. He's, he said, I'll answer those questions after the tournament, after I've lost, after I've won, whatever. But... As he was going through it, he was not going to talk about it. And that led to a lot of confusion because in the same breath, he was being really morose and somber and the end is nigh about his tennis and his career. Yes. So it led a lot of folks to speculate, is this his final tournament? Because he kept saying, you know, I never know when I step on court if this is going to be the last time. He said stuff like that before, but it felt different here. Yeah, and because we, we heard about the yeah. numbing and all. And then we get to the final, and <laughs> this was wild. Folks were saying, oh, Federer is in Paris. Right. That can only mean one thing. <laughs> He's there to hand over the trophy if he wins. This is his final match. He's going to retire. And the retirement watch was heightened. Mm-hmm. To the point where Rafa wins this match routinely, 6-3, 6-3, 6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-6-
heat in the nerve fibers to destroy them. And so the nerve fibers no longer carry pain signals to the brain. Now, this is only used for people who have previously had successful nerve blocks. and Which is what he had at this tournament. I believe so. And the pain relief can last from anywhere from nine months to over two years. And it's about 70 to 80% effective. It's the type of treatment that doesn't have a very long recovery. After like 24 hours to 72 hours, you can kind of be up and about. Which would then, if it's successful, allow him to play Wimbledon. Right. So it's a big if. We have no idea if he's going to play Wimbledon. And we know if is a dangerous word. (laughs) Yes. During this tournament, it seemed like... I mean, even the Spanish paper Marca reported that he's not playing Wimbledon. And then Benito was on, you know, patrol. Benito being Rafa's long-term agent. Yes. He was getting stories taken down, saying this is fake news. So if Rafa shows up at Wimbledon, he shows up. If not, it also won't be a huge surprise. You've expressed confusion in the past about Rafa's foot and not really understanding it. Would you say now you understand what's going on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because... I th- can I say can I just say though that I think it's been reported very poorly okay in the past and not reported by us very well either no but we're not reporters absolutely like, not <laughs> the thing is he's had Mueller Weiss syndrome for many many years for most of his career and now we find out that he had numbed his foot during 2008 Wimbledon that many of the knee issues that he encountered were most likely due to Mueller-Weiss syndrome, the way he changed his body and how it moved. Not only that, the shoes that he wore, that's the main culprit Mm -hmm. to what developed those knee injuries. And so for years, it was Rafa's knees, Rafa's knees. That's all we heard about. And it wasn't reported properly. Nobody ever said what the root issue was. The fans knew. Like, the fans knew better than any reporter. It was reported that, oh, his style of play... The effort that he puts on the court. He fights to the death. And that cumulative physical wear and tear and toll will not allow him to play past 26, 27. So why did the fans know that it was a congenital problem and the commentators didn't? They, They know that it led him into a depression in 2005. All the while, his entire career, it's been misrepresented. Literally, his entire career has yeah. been mis- misrepresented. That The reason why Rafa Nadal will not have a long career is because of how he plays tennis, his style of play. Boil down to just that. Right. So now we know that's not true. We know that he's missed a lot of slams, and as a result, his winning percentage at majors is really impressive because he's missed so many over his career. That is a very generous take to his opponents. <laughs> what do you mean? You know, most fans will be like, yeah, he has the best winning percentage of all of the big three in finals and in slams. Sure. Suck it. That's true. I'm just saying he's achieved things in a more economical way. Okay. I'm just saying that may sound like you're diminishing the, oh, the heft no. of the stat. That's not what I mean at all. I mean the opposite. To put a wrap on this, Nadal now has 22. I think... One of the reasons why some of his rival fandoms are particularly salty about it is because this was not supposed to happen. No. Last year, 
it was inevitable. We've talked about it on the show. It was inevitable that the all-time slam tally would be Djokovic's. And it could very well right. still it, be. It might still be. It could very well still be. You might even say it likely still will be. Right. But, but this was not supposed to it, happen. It hurts them that Rafa is too ahead. As you might say, it bond them. It sure do. <laughs> and no matter how many excuses they make for him, a lot of it has to do with him authoring his own demise. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to put an asterisk on Australia? Fine. You can't put one on this. Sure can't. <laughs> no. That is that that is you talk about gloating at the face, start of this. Faced him episode. down and beat him. So this is the gloat I will make. You <laughs> right. talked a lot of mess in Australia while Djokovic was flying overhead and you were down below saluting in the middle of the night as he flew over your city. That asterisk is nowhere to be found in Roland Garros. No. And as much as Rafa says he doesn't care about the all-time slam tally. He's just happy with what he's achieved, that his goal and his happiness comes from being able to play and compete and win. Bottom line, he loves tennis. He has the passion for it. The fandoms don't really have that kind of clarity. (laughs) You know? Right. The fandoms can fight till kingdom come. Uh Rafa's going to play as long as his body allows him to, and it might be to the detriment of his post-tennis life. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of tennis players do that. But I'm going to sit here and I'm, I'm going to enjoy this unasterisked French Open. <laughs> I know you have hopes to just speed through this last bit of the podcast. This is going to be a very long episode, but let's move on to doubles. Mm-hmm. Arivalo and Roger beat Dodig and Krychek in a three-hour men's doubles final. Arivalo becomes the first major champion from Central America. Can you believe that? El Salvador. And Roger is the oldest men's doubles champion in the open era, at 40. They also beat old man Ram and Salisbury in the quarterfinals <laughs> from a set down. Yeah, they were the number one seeds, Ram and Salisbury. Arivalo, I just have to say, gave a very touching and lovely speech in which he praised his wife. I really appreciated that. On the women's doubles, reunited and it feels so good. Man, can you imagine how much they could have won had they not separated? <laughs> Mladenovic and Garcia beat Coco Goff and Jesse Pegula in three sets. I'm, so Mladenovic in particular is a, a once-in-a-generation doubles player. She's won 25 doubles titles, some of them with Garcia, some with Babos, with other players. She's won five majors in women's doubles. Two of them are with Caroline, and three of them are with Tamea Babos. And she's won three slams in mixed as well, playing with uh, Dodig winning this year's Australian Open, and also winning two with Daniel Nestor. You may remember that there was uh, some kerfuffle between Mladenovic and Garcia, which we won't get into. There was some high school drama. Alizé Cornet got involved. It was over the Fed Cup, over the dissolution of their partnership, and some texts that were allegedly sent. It was bad for a little while. Mm-hmm. Mladenovic has a reputation of being one of the messiest people in tennis. In tennis's history. In history. 
I mean, when you speak that many languages, there's a lot of mess that you have access to. And this was actually the genesis of the 25 languages thing, because while she was complaining about Garcia, she said, you know, I speak five languages. You could have spoken to me in any of them. Mm. But they did play together at this year's Australian Open, and uh, they paired again, and, and the magic happened, winning Roland Garros. Now, for most of her career, Coco has partnered Katie McNally. That seems to have been perhaps a permanent shift now. Well, she did say that it didn't make sense because in singles they were playing different tournaments. So for this swing, she needed to find a different partner. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But she's had a lot of success now with Jesse Pagula. Wimbledon would like a bunch of medals, awards, and plaudits, and praise for finally (laughs) removing husband titles from their, quote, ladies champions yes. over the years. Uh, Mrs. Larry King, also known as Billie Jean King. Mrs. John Lloyd. Can you imagine? Can you imagine John Lloyd winning a Wimbledon single side? Rude. So tell me, if Serena had won, should have been Mrs. Ohanian? Yeah. <laughs> Mrs. No, they were calling her Mrs. Williams oh because she didn't officially change her name. Anyway, uh, welcome to the second wave of feminism, Wimbledon. You you have caught up to 1971. Congratulations. Ranking movers, Rafa Nadal is up to number four, moving up one spot. Kasper Ruud, number six, up two. Marin Cilic, up to number 17. Six spots he's jumped in the rankings. Listen, kudos to this man, because... Even though he's only won one slam title, we've seen at this tournament that his peak is very high. Yeah. And there are few players outside of the big four, the big five, who can match his highest level. And at 33 years old, looking like his career was done and dusted, this is very impressive from Marin Cilic. Runa uh, jumps 12 spots to number 28, so he is in seeding territory for Wimbledon. And actually, you don't need to be ranked 28 to be seeded at this Wimbledon. On the women's side, they're seeding players up to 42 because of the loss of the Russian and Belarusian players. Now on the women's side, the rankings, wow, this is, this is where the drama happened. Annette Condivate is on a beach in Saint-Tropez jumping up to number two in the rankings, having lost in the first round in Paris. There was a lot going on in that (laughs) sentence. A lot going on in that (laughs) sentence. A lot of implications, a lot of stuff you implied. I'm saying good for her because, as you know, the rankings are year-round. She earned this ranking. Krejcikova fell off because she lost early. She didn't defend those points. So much so that she's down to number 14. Yeah. This is how this is how close the players are underneath Iga, right? Contivate, unfortunately, is still dealing with the after effects of COVID. She's saying that things are so bad at the moment that she's having difficulty even training. So she needs to find a solution. She broke up with her coach Dmitry Tursunov for several reasons. I mean, people were like very upset about this because they were a successful pairing. But it's fairly logical. It is. Like, with the, the nature of the global political climate, 
owning a Russian passport, there are only so many countries he can go to right. right now to get visas to go. So there's visa problems and the fact that she's having serious medical issues. That she can't even practice right now and the combination of not knowing when she'll play next and the worry of not having access to your coach if you do show up. She said, you know, this was something that we just needed to come to a mutual agreement to to move on. Mm-hmm. Anz Shabur is another one who lost in the first round and moves up in the rankings to, to her career high of number four. There was a tone of, she's another one. Well, with that. I mean, good for that. They've had successful years the past 52 weeks, obviously. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I expected big things from her and Grass this year. Yes, yes. Big things from her and Grass. Jesse Pegula is now the number eight player in the world. Kazatkina is back up to number 12, having previously been a top 10 player a few years ago. Coco Goff reaches her career high of number 13. And Martina Trevisan up to number 27, jumping 32 spots. <laughs> I will say this about Jesse Pegula. She tweeted just today or yesterday that she has realized a goal in her career mm-hmm. that she didn't know if she would get there. But she is top 10 in singles and top 15 in doubles. Wow. And we are seeing now a resurgence of singles players being really good at both on yeah. the women's tour. Yeah. We can't finish the episode without talking about Amelie Moresmo's comments on the night matches and women's tennis in general. She had a hyenas two weeks as it was, tournament a, it was a rough go and i want to add some layers to it as we go but let's just we'll read the news first she was asked of course what the deal is with the rolling arrows night match why was there only one women's match scheduled for the night match versus nine men's matches and as the tournament director someone in charge of scheduling she has to answer for that she said quote in this era that we are in right now i don't feel And this is where she's trying to choose her words carefully. And as a woman, former woman's player, I don't feel bad or unfair saying that right now you have more attraction, more attractivity. Can you say that? Appeal for the men's matches. This immediately set off a barrage of criticism. Pam Shriver said, quote, It really hurts to have an alumni player who's now a tournament director who made history as a female coach of a top men's player, really diss women's tennis the way she did. Iga Sviantek was asked about it, and she said the comments were a bit disappointing. Now, Amelie apologized, although her apology was tempered (laughs) by the suggestion that her comments were taken, quote, out of context. Not great. No, ma'am. And I also, I don't think it's true in this case. They were not. But she said she's always been a champion of equality, but her comments were only concerning the pressures of having one night match and that they have to be fair to ticket holders. This is mind-blasting to me. This is a problem that you created. You sold the rights to Amazon Prime for this makeshift money-grab night session that has to start at 8.45 p.m. because that's the time slot. And so you've created this situation where you need to have just one match. You have not put yourself in a position to support women's tennis. And the thing is, like, women's tennis is in uh, an unusual place, right? This is not the Serena versus Venus days. We don't have Sharapova. Naomi's not going deep here. 
I understand, like I do understand the economic pressures, but I don't know why she framed it in this way, right? That That's the part that was very damaging. And I think that's the part that she tried to correct in her apology, that she wasn't trying to slam women's tennis in general, but she felt that in this tournament in particular, she couldn't find the marquee matches to put on the night session. It sounded like she was caught unawares, that she was not prepared for this question, and then she reverted to the tried-and-true tropes. So I said we would add some layers, and I think, you know, I wonder if former professional tennis players, especially one that achieved at such a high level, like what qualifications do they bring to this sort of role, to being a tournament director, right? They understand the game, but are they are they experts in managing a budget, in creating a schedule, in being sort of the PR communications chief for a major tournament? Like... There are people who go to school and work for this type of role. Are we setting players up for failure by putting famous players in this role? Right, but specifically to the point of scheduling, they should be more qualified to be able to tackle this than some Joe Schmo who did a four-year degree and thinks he knows everything. I don't know. Should they? The thing is, like, especially players who achieve at a really, really high level... They probably lack a lot of organizational skills elsewhere because there was always somebody to do that for them. Right, but they know the considerations that goes into playing that type of match. Mm. They've been there where they've had to play a night match and what that entails for recovery, for press, for getting up the next day, for practicing the next day, for this, that, what have you. So to come to this question looking like you're completely abandoned at sea and you're just praying that there is a life fest near you. Like, that is <laughs> that nobody wild pushes. to me, yeah. right? I, I'll just say I agree with Iga. It was disappointing. I don't think that Amelie uh, dislikes women's tennis or thinks it's inferior, but I need her to show that a lot better. Can we, on that note, stop asking Iga about Rafa after every match? Like, we get it. But does Iga want to stop talking about Rafa? <laughs> I'm not sure that that's the case. We may be tired of it, but... Every match, why does she have to comment about Rafa? But can you imagine he is your all-time fave and you're out here achieving your biggest dreams on the same stages as him at the same time? Right, alongside him. Like, that's crazy. I mean, I, I have to say, I do find, like, the stalker energy very amusing. And to be clear, it is kind of stalker energy. <laughs> I mean, it's inti- I mean, I get why people think it's ridiculous, but there was this video of Rafa w- approaching her, walking toward her on the practice court, and she didn't see him coming. She's just sitting there in her chair, and he walks up to her, he's like, I don't know what he said, but he touches her, whatever, and she's like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> anyway, back to Emily. She actually did float the recommendation that women play best of five at some point that she that she would have liked to play best of five in her career because it gives you more time to like get into the match and that is a potential solution to this night session uh for call palaver who is asking for that i don't know i would like to see it okay 
I personally like best of five tennis and don't know why women can't do it. I mean, we know they can do it, but they're not allowed. We already have so many scheduling problems. I know. I actually already thought, I thought that so was funny scheduling problems. because she said that off the back of saying the biggest difficulty of being a tournament director was scheduling. And then she suggested something that would make that even more difficult. But fine. Get some better aeration under your roof. Let's start with that. <laughs> Let's get some air conditioning. We're not going to look ahead too much to Wimbledon because we'll have time to do that. Um, just another note that another slam has come and gone. And we've heard absolutely nothing about the investigation into the accusations against Alexander Zverev. So we're waiting with bated breath about that. Mm-hmm. After he beat Alcaraz, I tweeted that very simply. What is going on with the investigation by the mm-hmm. ATP? And people are like, you fraud. You <laughs> disgust me. You, how dare you? Two weeks ago when he was playing trash, you had nothing to say. But know that he has this big when you've got something to say. Whispers. Yes. That's part of, um, that's part of it. But also. There's more attention in him now. So yes, I am personally invested and have an interest in finding out what's going on and holding the ATP to this fire. And so instead of just throwing unmitigated plaudits at the feet of this man, I want to also bring this up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first of all, it is literally the best time to bring it up. And second of all, we talk about it all the time. He doesn't have to be winning. We talk about it constantly. So shut the fuck up. <laughs> also, when people... Oh my God. Whew. When people address me as they do this all the time or y'all, who the fuck is y'all? Excuse you. For, for oh, what do you oh, mean? Oh, I get heated. I mean, like, you, get, you get heated a lot. When people say y'all do such and such or y'all only do this when he's winning, who is y'all? Somebody because with Because I, I know you're not talking to me. Somebody with an egg and a bunch of right, digits right. behind their handle. Because it's not me you're talking about. It couldn't be. We didn't mention this, but we found out too that that guy has torn ligaments in his ankle, I guess, or foot. Yeah. And he'll be doing consulting with doctors and what have you. But it seems like he'll be out for a long stretch. Yeah. And unfortunate for him, because if he had won this title, he would have been world number one. You know, that is a thought that makes me... Damn. ...want to throw up. Yeah. But... That's what had happened. So when you say like, oh my God, this is so unfortunate for him. It actually was. It, it is. It actually really was. Yeah. Again, my bandwidth, emotional and otherwise just does not allow me. Right. Emotional, intellectual, principled. But that's just a, a That's fact just me. That he's lost quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another slam, another year without the ATP mentioning Pride Month. Happy Pride, which, y'all. You know what? I don't need it, but it is a glaring because the other tennis organizations change their their icons, everything, right? With rainbows. Uh, the WTA has it feels, made it. It feels very pointed, intentional pointed. at this point. The WTA does pride stuff now for yes. the last few years. Yes. They've already started. Tennis.com or Tennis Channel, they're out here with Trixie Mattel. Like, excuse me, Tennis Channel is owned by Sinclair Media which is like extremely conservative and they're doing pride content. 
ATP, what are you doing? Because there was some survey, right? <laughs> some survey about attitudes. Yes. yes. <laughs> we still haven't heard maybe, the result of that. Maybe they didn't jibe with the corporate attitude. Anyway, there, there, there has been radio silence. And it would be comical, and I suppose it still is kind of comical, but it would be even more comical if it weren't so telling of their modus operandi for every single issue. Mm-hmm. It's like, how dare you try and force us to do anything but the bare minimum? Yeah. And like, I don't need it. And I don't need corporate pride, right? I, I I don't need like the banks and the police department and everything to be dressed up in rainbows because I know it's disingenuous. I'm just wondering like, what is the why? Why are they not? Mm-hmm. But also I'd like you to try so I can ridicule it if it's bad. <laughs> See, that's that's the why. That Because <laughs> the haters, that's why they're not doing it. No, they just don't give a flying fuck about anything. yeah. yeah. How liberating would that be? Mm. I mean, oh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's not end on a a sour note. This was a really exciting Roland Garros for us as fans. It was fun to cover as a podcast. And I'm just, I'm looking forward to, we're trying to put out an episode, kind of a historical episode in the interim between the Channel Slam. And listen, I love grass. I'm not ashamed. I love grass court tennis, and I love Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. You don't like me giving away hints, but there was something we said on this episode that is a hint, but it would not be the hint that you think that it is. See, I I even missed it, but I missed a lot of things. All right. So you are way more ahead in your research than I am, which is unusual. I'm never having to play catch up with these research episodes, but I got to get myself in gear. You do. Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. As always, this is the Body Serve Tennis Podcast. We are in our eighth year. Oh my God. Uh, We are long in the teeth, mm -hmm. but we're still here. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) Linktree.com slash the body serve. Thanks again. Till Till next time. time. Till next time. Till till next time. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.